Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 22. Brady's Journal. Approximately three months from departing Earth. I am aboard one of the smaller high-speed Mergendorf vessels, having left the fortress on Mergendorf over an hour ago. In less than five minutes, I will approach the perimeter, which encompasses this entire solar system. The computer, however, is at a loss to how to proceed. It appears that we may have to slow the vessel and wait. Regardless of my immediate problem, it feels good to have my old human body back again. I feel mobile and free. I feel free from the elders after all this time. I left the others behind so they could search for the elders in that mysterious place near the lime-colored sea. I am doubtful that they'll be able to combat such vast powers, but I do not underestimate Commander Grok either. His task is great. My task at this point is even greater. I have been away from Earth for almost three months, and in that time I have become so appreciative of that small planet on the galaxy's edge. I fear for its future. How do I convince the leaders of Earth to listen to little old Bill Brady? How do I tell them in 30 years there will be a massive war of undoing because of something called the RPEG? I can only, as a first course of action, contact Bob Coffey, and hopefully my trusted friend will help me take the proper action. Perseverance, Lorna. Defense levels have just gone inoperative, announced the computer. Brady looked up from his wrinkled journal. Inoperative? How is that possible, computer? Unknown. These powers were transmitted directly from Volrain. Grok, he must have gotten through. Possible. Volrainian instructions have been cut. Can we get through the perimeter? Yes, we are right on the edge of the perimeter right now. I can stop this ship's progress, but I do suggest a forward thrust. By all means, a forward thrust, smiled Brady as he signaled with his hands. The tiny craft, guided by the computer, soared through the space between the silver supports of the perimeter. There were no ships to stop its progress, as the perimeter was in one massive state of confusion and probably anarchy, and the tiny glow of light containing that human, Bill Brady, traveled toward his destination some 49 light-years away. Grok had cut the power to the vortex. As the hours passed, Grok worked with Laren, Flezen, and the Renegan to restore the lost levels. Four Mergendorf days had passed since they brought the vortex to its full capacity. They were still unsure of their work until three dwarfs finally came running up the tunnel. Commander, are you all right? asked Laren as he ran up to them. Where's Brady? Grok wanted to know. Did you destroy the elders? Yes, we did. We can discuss that later. Now, where is Brady? Your Earth friend, laughed Halfrin. You think you're so much in command, Grok. He's on his way to his home planet, but it seems as though his memory will be a bit faulty. What is he talking about? asked Grok as he moved forward. I don't know, Commander. This is the first he mentioned of this said Laren. Halprin. Brady will reach home as it appears now. However, when he steps from the ship through the hatch, a memory charger will be activated. He will not know where he has been. 
You will only know the date, August 31st, 1992, in Earth time. But you won't be able to remember the meaning. It will all be buried, Grok. Your friend will turn, and his ship will be gone, vaporized. He will be one man with an unprovable and unknown adventure. Grok took the fortress leader by the corners of his garment, lifting him into the air. With all his strength, he hurled Halfron against the stone floor. Dazed, Halfron looked up at the commander and kept smiling. You pitiful little creature, sacrificing the only hope of an entire world for your feelings. There is no Valerian lore, Halfron. No more mindless leaders. The elders will live on through me and all others who believe in the Valeranian law. Brock picked up a fluton rifle and aimed it directly at the laughing dwarf, who seemed to be almost taunting Grack into killing him. But the commander hesitated, not squeezing the trigger, and then he threw the rifle to the floor. You can live with your beliefs, Halfron. Whether they are right or wrong, they are your problems. Antobian, he yelled as the dwarf sprung forward. Yes, Commander. We know Brady's been gone for four days. Did anyone tell him of time dilation? Laren? No, Commander. He just boarded the vessel, and the computer brought the vessel through the perimeter. Brady knows nothing of how time has slowed for him. Is there any chance that we could contact Brady? Not at that speed, Commander, unless he stopped at the perimeter. No, we tracked him, said Sheesh. He went through the perimeter. He's off the screens now, Commander. Grack pointed to the other ship in the docking bay. Paris, can we program that ship to go faster than Brady's ship? It could not sustain the velocity, Commander. I suggest returning to our vessel. We would at least have weapons at our disposal, and our speed is greater. Then we mustn't waste any time. We can close the gap, Sheesh. Do you wish to accompany us to Earth? I would be honored, Commander, said the Renegade. Good. Paris, Antobian. Set this ship to travel to our vessel. I want to avoid any trams, and I want exact figures on how long it will take us to get to Norilon at maximum speed. Yes, Commander. I want to leave this fortress. I want to leave this place. I want to leave Mergendorf, and none too soon. Bill Brady looked down at the Mergendorf clock. The total elapsed time since he left the fortress was nearing 13 Mergendorf days. He knew without asking the computer, that figure equaled almost three Earth weeks. Just outside his window, he could see the stormy planet Jupiter and the sun blazing in the distance as his heart beat faster. The vessel decelerated as it neared the orbit of Mars, although the red planet was some distance away. Earth, now looking like one of thousands of stars, was now visible ahead. How long, computer? Matter of minutes, Brady. And you say they can't track this ship from Earth? No, this vessel was built to constrain any attempts to scan. I don't want any military jets descending upon that mountain, said Brady as he looked forward. Earth was now a glowing bright circle, and even though the ship was slowing, the planet's features were rapidly coming into view. Brady sensed a feeling of jubilation, a longing, like seeing the face of a lost friend. The familiar cloud patterns over the blue Atlantic and the outline of the African continent were now taking shape. With great emotion, 
He soared over the eastern coast of Africa, where eons before man had emerged as a higher life form on the planet. It was a sight he had thought for many weeks that he would never see again. It will now make the descent over the large body called the Pacific Ocean. Good, 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 said the anxious Brady as he watched the re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. We will pass over the Pacific Ocean, lowering our altitude to the coast of the next continent. That's not America, you dumb computer, exclaimed Brady. United States of America, he added with some goosebumps filling his arms. John F. Kennedy, President of the United States. Please engage the field density button, instructed the computer. Yes, yes, of course. Brady pushed the blue and red button and the field snapped into place. The Pacific was rushing under him like a racetrack under a car. As he moved lower and lower into the atmosphere, the curvature of the Earth soon vanished and he could now see the west coast of the United States thousands of feet below. The mighty Rockies pushed upward at a height not unfamiliar to him when he had traveled by jet. In the distance was the Great Salt Lake and the ship began to circle as it maneuvered over the salt flats. Only a few miles to the west were the jagged peaks of Peace Mountain. His heart thumped as the ship descended to the indentation made so long ago by the collision of a Renegade ship. Like a helicopter, the tiny Mergendorf ship hovered over the peaks and floated down to the ground, touching with a slight shock as it hit. Brady felt himself almost in a frozen stupor. He looked ahead out the windows. For so long, he had only seen the darkness of space. In front of him was the blue lake and miles of forested land in the background. Civilization was many days away on foot, but when compared to what he had just been through, that walk meant nothing. Computer, I hate to land and run, but I must leave this ship, he said, pushing the field density button. Understood, Brady. Brady got up from the seat, picking up his worn journal. He thumbed through the pages, looking at the early entries with some of Lorna's handwriting on the side columns. But he knew now he had to go outside, and he closed the journal quickly. He headed toward the hatch and firmly grasped the handle in his hand. Computer, I am ready. Open the hatch, baby. The hatch, creaking slightly, pushed out a few inches and slid to the right. Fresh mountain air, earth air, blew into the ship. He inhaled deeply, letting the air soothe his lungs as he felt the warm sun upon his face. He turned back to the computer one last time. Good luck, Bill Brady. I'll be back, computer. Hold your horses, he said as he inhaled again, with my friend, Bob Coffee. Brady filled his lungs one final time and stepped through the hatch. But as he stepped outside, a barrage of twinkling green light enveloped the ship. Brady's figure seemed to freeze for a few moments, and then it was thrust forward, rolling over the scattered rocks on the indentation. He tumbled over and over again until, like a wounded animal, he staggered to his feet. His mind was disoriented and his strength had been zapped by something in that green light. In his blurred vision, he was able to see the Mergendorf vessel vanish from sight. He stumbled forward, falling to the ground, but still, as if by instinct, clutched his journal. I must warn them, warn them, he mumbled, remembering only the fact that he must warn them. He got onto his feet again, his mind confused. 
Now is the time to leave, he thought, and he moved forward, narrowly averting, slipping down the rocky slope. An hour later, his mind still felt wasted, but he reached a lake shore. He dropped to his knees and then fell to the sand. His eyes were half open, and he could see the wavy image of Peace Mountain on the lake, but his senses were failing. He muttered as he passed out. When he awoke the next morning, Brady moved like a bird, traveling by instinct, traversing the narrow forested road without question. Three days later, with beard stubble and perspiration across his forehead, he walked from the Peace Mountain Reserve to the edge of a highway. Seeing the highway, passing cars, and reminders of civilization seemed to jar his mind. Things were coming back to him, many things, but not the meaning of that date that floated around his brain. August 31st, 1992. As he saw a large tractor-trailer truck, he remembered more. Most of his experience, his memory seemed to be drifting back in chunks, but he could not pin down that date. August 31st, 1992. He had to get to Bob Coffee and right away. In the distance, a 1963 Chevy station wagon, battered and rusted, turned down the highway. Brady immediately stuck out his thumb. The car slowed and the driver pulled over just ahead of him. He ran forward and got inside. Ha a human being, said Brady as he saw the driver. I have to get to a phone, he told the older man. Phone, stated the driver as he studied Brady's beard. You all right there, son? What are you, one of those leftover hippies? What? I just have to get to a phone. All right, all right, there's one up at Bellows Junction. Are you sure you're all right, bud? You look kind of funny. Brady nodded, wiping the perspiration from his face, and then he pushed through his wavy hair. He spoke very little with the man during the ten-mile trip into Bellows Junction. Brady had so much to say, but he had to restrain himself and take it step by step. Your radio work? Asked Brady as they neared the town. Yeah, it does, but it won't pick up many stations this time of day. Doesn't have a range, huh? No range. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Say, you ever got an ATM card, have you? What? Both sides of the station were filled with cars, but no attendance. No, no, I'm broke, I guess. ATM? I was going to ask you for some phone money. Yeah, sure. I figured as much, said the man as he dug into his pocket. Here, here's some real money. Two dollars? Questioned Brady, knowing that he did need the money. Thanks a lot, but that's a lot of money, Mac. What? The man stepped from the car and began pumping the gas himself. Brady came around the side, looking into the station. Hey, let them do it. Where are these clowns anyways? Oh, fat chance. They're going to come out and pump my gas? Ah, screw them. Go to another station there, Gramps. Make your phone call, son, said the man as he watched the numbers spinning inside the pump on some sort of readout. Where did they get a pump like this? Brady walked over to the telephone that appeared to be cut in the open. There was no telephone booth. He looked out at the push buttons and saw a slot for paper currency. Then he read the instructions. What the hell is this? He asked, half looking back at the driver. Two dollars for a damn phone call? He asked, reluctantly put both bills in the slot. Then he pushed zero for the operator and waited. Operator 359072. Operator, I'd like to place a person-to-person call to Mr. Robert Coffey. The number is... I cannot place that call for you. 
What do you mean you can't place a call? You can dial directly or use your credit card, sir. Use my what? My credit card? Please reread the instructions. Thank you for calling. Who the hell is this? What's your name? Wherever it was, hung up. Idiot, said Brady as he slammed down the telephone and the two dollars came back from the slot. He pushed the bills back inside and read the instructions again and reluctantly pushed the buttons. He listened to the line ring in strange tones. A weak and tired voice answered the call. Hello? This is Bill Brady, he proclaimed, and there was a long silence. He looked at the telephone, which he already didn't trust, and he spoke again. I said, this is Bill Brady. I want to speak to Colonel Coffee." I can't believe it. You sound like Bill. Of course I sound like Bill. This is Bill. Bill, where in God's name are you? Peg, is that you? Yes, Bill. You got a cold or something? Where's Bob? Bill, we don't know where you've been. Don't you know? She said as her voice shook. Don't know? Don't know what? Asked Brady impatiently. Bob has been institutionalized for some time, Bill. He what? Peg, tell me where he is. I'll get him out right now. No, Bill. Don't, don't, don't try anything like that. She pleaded. All right, all right. Just tell me where he is. Government Center, 45, San Cristobal Boulevard, San Francisco, room 27A. He gets the best care in the country, and he has no pain. I'm going out there, Peg, Brady told her. Don't tell anybody I call. Please, don't tell anybody I call. Brady jogged back to the car. The driver was just finishing putting in some oil into the crankcase. I'm going to go get some water. I'll be right back, he said as the driver shut the hood and Brady caught sight of the price above the pump. What's the matter? asked the man. Dollar eighteen a gallon? he demanded. What the hell's the matter with these clowns ripping you off of that gas? And that phone call cost an arm and a leg. Calm down, son. Calm down. Go in and get your water. Here. Give the guy... Give the guy the money for the gas, said the driver. You're crazy paying him that amount of money, Gramps. Brady stomped across the pavement with the bills in his hand. The attendant was sitting behind the counter with his sneakers up on the counter. A strange, penetrating aroma filled the room as the radio blasted from behind. Brady began twitching his nose, and he looked down at the long-haired man who was smoking a marijuana joint. Yay, you're smoking a reefer, he said as he slammed the money on the counter. The attendant looked up at him as if he were crazy. He took his feet down and stood. Yeah, so what? He snarled as he took the money. Let's see, that'll be 50 bucks. You know what you are? You're a damn swindler is what you are. I only work here, pal. I don't own the place, he said as the news broadcast came over the air. Latest news on the Symbiotic Radio Network. I'm getting some water, snapped Brady. Got your quarter? Why don't you just shove it? I'm not paying for water, said Brady as he went over to the water cooler. There was a coin slot directly over the tap. The attendant walked over and handed him the change. Charging for water? Charging ten times a gas price? Hey, our prices, man, are the cheapest in the region. Yeah, go back and smoke your reefer and get off my back, said Brady as he picked a quarter out. He lifted it over the slot and was about to drop it in when he saw the date on the face of the coin. It read 1989. Swallowing the lump in his throat, he backed up against the windows as the attendant turned up the radio broadcast. President Bush said today that Americans should be patient, and the energy crisis has now seen the light at the end of the tunnel. 
president, speaking before the Federated Oil Company, said the supply of gasoline will soon reach peak levels and that new oil will be pumped from the acquired territories. Retreating Iranians, of course, demolished those wells when the U.S. Marine stormed the refinery two years ago. President Bush? Who's President Bush? Where's Kennedy? Asked Brady as it all came back to him in a backlash of reality. He had been traveling faster than the speed of light on both the trip to Murgendorf and his journey back home. Time had passed unabated on Earth, while aboard the ships it had slowed to a distorted walk. It was hard for him to even fathom. What, man, what? Brady remained in awe, backed against the window as the broadcast continued. Damn. Damn. Damn said Brady as he slinked along the wall and sprinted back to the car. He ripped open the door and leaped inside. What's the day today, old man? Today's the 28th, said the driver. 28th of what? Oh, you have been away. 28th of August. Of what year? 1992. Can I bring you to a hospital or something, buddy? No, bring me to San Francisco. <laughs> I'm going to Reno, son, but... You can catch a train over to San Francisco. Fine. August 31st, 1992. August 31st, said Brady as he tried to remember. What the hell does that date mean? Next Monday. What's so important about next Monday, son? I can't remember, said Brady as he realized he was acting bizarre. Nothing, nothing. I'm just feeling a little tired, that's all. Just a little tired. As quickly as that information had bubbled to his consciousness, it became useless. The driver, who kept insisting that Brady see a doctor, finally let him off in Reno in a shopping center, and Brady hitchhiked the rest of the way to San Francisco. Twenty-nine years later, San Francisco was relatively the same. Cars were different, smaller, and the cable cars kept chugging up the tracks and the tourists came into town. He hurried up the street, lingering in the mass of people who had just gotten out of work. He reached an arched, smooth white stone building and paused. He looked up at the black numbers, 45 on the face. He thought for a few minutes, still trying to convince himself that he really was in 1992. Perhaps it was some trick by the elders, and he hadn't left Murgendorf at all. But it was very real. He walked up the steps, passing the grass, and opened the doors to the lobby. The cooler air felt good on his face. I'm here to see Colonel Robert G. Coffee, room 27A. Family, sir? She asked him. Well, no, I'm a close friend, close friend from a long ago. I still have to clear it with his family. Sure, call his wife Peg. What's your name? Brady, William Francis Brady. I just talked to the Colonel's wife and Colonel's daughter handles all his affairs. What do you mean his daughter? His daughter? Yes. Yes, do you have a credit card identification or a license? No, I don't have my wallet with me. Very well, she said, studying his ruddy appearance. You see, ma'am, I'm... He said in his usual manner of stretching the truth. And then he stopped, felt compelled not to complete the exaggeration. I just call the daughter. Please be seated in the lobby. Brady nodded his head, convinced that Coffee's daughter would order him thrown out of the center. He sat down on the sofa, keeping his eyes on the two guards on either side of the hallway. There was no way he was going to slip by them and get to Coffee's room. They were armed and very attentive. He sat tense, the sweat stuck on his brow, as he tried again to fathom the meaning of the following Monday, August 31st, 1992. His daughter is on her way down here, Mr. Brady. 
called the receptionist. Brady nodded as he thought back. In flashes, the whole saga on Mergendorf compulsively kept running through his head, yet he couldn't remember that date. He wiped his brow again, sweating in the dry heat of his own planet, which had moved ahead almost 30 years in time and left him behind. And that date just kept sizzling in his mind like a warning buzzer at the end of a long basketball game. Over and over again he tried to remember, but he couldn't bring it to the surface. The information had been buried deep in his brain, and somehow he had forgotten it. He lowered his head, almost down to his knees, continuing his thoughts as the minutes passed. The fortress, the barren wasteland, the whimsical gruckens, the vessels, the elders, the freeholders. What did it all mean? He felt the presence of someone near the sofa, although no one had spoken. Lifting his head upward and still contemplating the date, his pensive face grew amazingly serene. He gazed into the sparkling green eyes of a woman probably ten years his senior. She had the beginnings of crow's peaks around her trim brows. He peered at the thick blonde hair, just beginning to evidence a touch of gray as it flowed onto her shoulders. It had been twenty-nine years since he had seen that hair. Her eyes, although weeping, still reflected an eternal optimism he had known so well, and her bright smile shone forward. Brady! 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 Lorna? He said ever so quietly as he arose. You, she clutched onto him, holding him tightly as she spoke into his shoulder. I can't believe this. I just can't. You're here, Brady. Warner, I... She put her finger over his mouth and turned back to the receptionist. It's all right, Mary. I know this man. He's going up to the room with me. She took him under the arm and passed the guard. Afternoon, Dr. Coffee. Afternoon, Rick. She said as she led Brady to the stairway. She opened the door and literally pushed him to the second floor. They went down the corridor to an open sun deck that overlooked San Francisco and the harbor. With the sun glaring in her eyes, she turned toward him. Brady, you're only 29 years old. It must be true. It must be true. Dad was right. He was right, she said as the tears started again. Brady felt choked and couldn't speak. It all makes sense now. I know what Dad said. Dreams, so many dreams from long ago. All those things, they're all so real, aren't they? She asked, never letting go of his hands. 29 years ago, last month, an alien craft, a Mergendorf craft, like, like the one that took your Hank Brady. Yes, Lorna, it's all true. So many times I, I, she choked on her words. I've been out to that mountain with my father. And then all alone, after his breakdown. Lorna, Lorna, the date. I can remember telling you a date so many years ago. I know, I know, Brady. It's Monday. I've been scared half out of my mind because I don't know the meaning of it. You know the meaning of it, don't you? No, I was hoping you did, he said as he grabbed her by the shoulders. Something happened at Peace Mountain. I stepped off the Mergendorf ship Everything was messed up. The ship the ship just disappeared. I was going down the mountain, and then I'm in the forest. The next thing I remember, I'm standing on some highway, thumbing a car down. My journal, it had everything in it. It's gone. It's back there somewhere, but I can't remember where. Leaving that ship did something to my mind. I just can't remember. I know something terrible is going to happen next Monday, but I, I, I just don't know what it is. Just let me go in and talk to Coffee. 
You can't, Brady. It's all so sad. Remember him as he was, Brady. Remember him as he was. Let's go find the journal. No, I want to see him, said Brady as he marched down the corridor. You were always so stubborn. She followed him, passing the swinging doors, and by two or more institutional guards who greeted her again as Dr. Coffee. He walked down another corridor and up to Coffee's room. He read the words on the brass plate. Colonel Robert G. Coffee, USAF, retired, 27A. Brady, please reconsider one more time, she pleaded. Brady, however, had made up his mind and opened the heavy metal door. He took one step inside and stopped. In front of a window that partially overlooked the walls of the institution sat an old man with his back to the door. His long white hair reached shoulder length and his hands were resting on the arms of the chair. Brady took another step, fully aware of what had happened. Lorna stayed behind as he inched his way forward, staring blatantly at coffee. Brady's mouth just hung open in disbelief. The sagging and wrinkled countenance of the once vital man made him truly aware that he had indeed arrived in 1992. The vacant stare of the colonel's eyes told him that Coffee possessed a knowledge that was unprovable to anyone on earth except Lorna. Passivity demonstrated that irresoluble conflict within the man, imploded like the heaviest neutron star, held in by unsustainable tensions. Bob, Brady began as he stooped down on one knee and held the wrinkled hand. Oh, Bob. Bob. Oh, my God. Bob, he stammered, bending his head onto the colonel's insensitive hand. Oh, coffee. He weeped as he shook his head. It's all true, coffee. It's all true. The ship, the aliens, it all happened. Look at me. I'm 29 years old. It's 1992. And I was born in 1934, he said, looking up at Lorna. Bob, Bob, you've got to listen. It's all true, all of it. I can't hear you, Brady, said Lorna, crossing the room to comfort him. She put her hands on his shoulders and shook her head. He told me time and time again how he saw you climb Peace Mountain and how the ship came out of nowhere, that green light taking you away. He looked and looked, but you were gone. He waited before he told them all, keeping it all inside. And when he did tell them, they thought he was making it all up. He grew adamant, distrustful, and spiteful of all those around him because he knew he was right, she said, nodding quickly. And God, by God, he was right. Brady arose, tears in his red eyes, and hugged her. Bob took you in, didn't he, Lorna? After the shooting, he came to the hospital with money. My biological parents were there. Same as ever, blaming and hating. I told Coffee what they had done to me, and he watched. Over the weeks, he watched and watched until my father struck me. Coffee told me later with Peg, he brought Peg along. They said they wanted to take me away from all the hate. I agreed. My own well-being, I agreed. They won the custody suit. It took a while, but they won it. And then he told me the whole story, and I told him what I knew. But there were no witnesses, no evidence, nothing to corroborate it. So many times I doubted. I thought you just must be dead. But then I'd rebound and I'd try to figure it all out. I know, he said as they walked to the window. He looked past the edge of the white wall to what used to be the parking lot of the building. He couldn't get the date out of his mind. I didn't mean to carry on so. No, I was just thinking of that. 
It's the date. The damn date. We have to go back to Peace Mountain and look for the journal. I know I wrote everything that happened to me in that journal. The same journal that I got you? The same journal. We have less than two days. It's Saturday, Brady. One and a half days. At 11.34, Monday morning, something is going to happen. He said as he looked back at coffee. He walked from Lorner and stood next to the colonel. We'll find it, Bob. We'll find out what it means, he said, closing his eyes. She came in from behind, putting her arm around him as they walked from the room without looking back. Lorna, he said as they turned down the hallway, I don't have a car. I have a car, Brady. Toyota. Toyota? Is that a Chevy or a Ford? No, it's a Toyota. Things sure have changed. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theater of the Words.